There was once a game warden whose sister was married to a master fisherman. Every time the game warden's brother-in-law went on a fishing trip, he would always come back with an incredible amount of fish. I mean an incredible amount. More than anyone the game warden had ever seen. The game warden was astonished that he knew such an impressive fisherman. One day, his brother-in-law asked the game warden if he'd like to go fishing. The game warden was so excited. Now he would finally get to see his famed brother-in-law in action. He agreed with great enthusiasm, and they set a date. When that date came, the game warden arrived at the lake and backed his boat up into the water. His brother-in-law arrived, carrying only a thermos and a small satchel. No fishing poles, no tackle box, no GPS gadget that tells you where the fish are, no other equipment that they sell at Gander Mountain that I have no idea about, but I'm sure somebody in here could tell me what it is. Just a thermos and a satchel. The game warden was a bit confused by this, but he got into the boat and set off all the same. He's the expert. He must know what he's doing. His brother-in-law took control of the boat and drove them out into the center of the lake and dropped anchor. Now, if you've ever been fishing or if you've ever watched fishing on TV for reasons passing understanding, you know that the middle of the lake is the exact wrong place to go to fish. You go to the, the, the shallow parts under the trees or something. Clearly, I've never been fishing. <laughs> Once again, the game warden was quite perplexed, but he figured, this guy's the master. He must know something that I don't. When they'd stopped, the brother-in-law reached into his satchel and pulled out a stick of dynamite <laughs> and lit the stick of dynamite and then tossed it into the center of the lake. A few seconds later, there was a muffled explosion, and then after that, some fish started bubbling up to the surface. For the record, that is not what the song Bubbling Up is about. The game warden was shocked and angry. You can't do that, he says. Do you understand how many rules and regulations you have broken? And then he proceeded to read the riot act to his brother-in-law, listing all of the different game regulations that he had violated. After many minutes of this tirade, the game warden was finally finished. The brother-in-law reached into his satchel again, pulled out another stick of dynamite, lit it, and tossed it to his brother-in-law, the game warden. <laughs> Smiling, the brother-in-law said, well, are you just going to sit there, or are you going to fish? <laughs> Friends, I think we've been just sitting here for too long. I was away last week at annual conference in Roanoke, Star City, baby. Ooh. First, I want to thank Mike Finnegan for st standing in and preaching for me. I heard he preached a phenomenal sermon. And for those of you that don't know, annual conference is an annual meeting of Methodist pastors and laity from all around the state of Virginia. 
Every pastor is required to attend, and, every, uh, and, and there is a lay representative for every pastor. We meet to set the budget for the following year for the statewide level of church governance. We celebrate those pastors that are retiring. We ordain new pastors, and we decide on other priorities and objectives for our, chur- for our churches. Is that me? My apologies. While I was there, I heard the following statistic. In 2015, the combined average worship attendance for all Methodist churches in the Virginia Conference was a little over 102,000. 102,000 people, plus or minus, on average, came to a Methodist church on any given Sunday. In 2016, that number is down to 98,000. If you're doing quick math, you don't need to because I'll tell you that's a 4.5% drop in one year. From, this year to la- from last year to this year, over 4,000 people stopped worshiping at Methodist churches in this state on a given Sunday. This happened for two reasons. I can't go to church conferences or events without hearing that people are coming to church fewer and fewer Sundays a month. The average committed worship attender comes to church 1.4 times per month. It used to be four, then it became two, now it's down to 1.4 times per month. So the first reason that our numbers are going down is that committed Christians are coming to church less and less. And if that were the only reason, then perhaps the solution to the problem would be for pastors such as myself to make worship more compelling. But it's not the only reason. We know that fewer and fewer people in this country are identifying as Christians. Every year, the number of people that identify as either atheist or agnostic is going up. The number of people that don't declare allegiance to any branch of Christianity is going down up. The group of people that indicate no spiritual preference is growing. Fewer and fewer people are calling on Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Fewer and fewer people are believing in and trusting in and loving our God. So friends, I have to ask you, are you just going to sit there or are you going to fish? Because here's the thing, we have a story to tell. We have a story to tell that the world needs to hear. We have a story to tell that people need to hear. And this is why. On the second day of CVBS at my site, we were talking about how God knows our worth. God sees us, God knows us, and God knows how much we are worth. And in doing that, I asked the children how other people see them. And from that question... I had child after child after child talk about how they are bullied. And when a seven-year-old tells you that she is bullied on the school bus and you look into her eyes and you see what that experience is doing to her, how that experience is crushing her soul, how it's diminishing her perceived worth, you want to, you just want to tell them the truth. You want to tell them the truth that the bully doesn't get to decide their worth. The bully doesn't get to define them. The bully doesn't decide who they are and whose they are. God alone does that. Our God defines us. Our God defines their worth. We are gods. 
and that God loves us so much. God says we are his children, and God thinks that we are of infinite value, so much value that he gave up his son in order to win relationship with us. I love that we do vacation Bible school the way we do. And I love that we got to tell those children that story this week. But I, and, and I, what do, we have 800 kids in the entire CVBS program. 33 sites this week, plus or minus 800 kids, all got to hear that they are of infinite value to God. And if my group is any indication, the vast majority of those kids need to hear that message. But what I want you to think about right now, what I want you to hold on to right now, what I want you to picture right now are the countless children, teens, young adults, adults, seniors who desperately need to hear that message and aren't able to come to CVBS. Friends, we have a story to tell. And we have a world that desperately needs to hear it. So let me tell you that story so that you can go and tell that story to others. Now, this story is the big story that God is telling all throughout Scripture from beginning to end. It's the story that is told in virtually every encounter of, with God in the Old Testament and with Jesus in the New Testament. We told the children five different stories this week and used each story to emphasize one particular aspect of the story. But you can really tell the whole story using just one of them, which is what I'm going to do for simplicity's sake. Would you turn with me to John chapter 3? Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Sorry, I'm getting excited. The first part of this story is that Jesus sees us. It's not necessarily as pronounced in this story as it is in the Zacchaeus story, which is the one where the short tax collector climbs the tree in order to see Jesus. Great story. Check it out. Luke 19. Or the blind Bartimaeus story. Also really good. Mark 10. Giving you some homework. But the point is here in this story nonetheless. Jesus sees us. Jesus sees us. Sorry. It sounded weird in my ear. Jesus sees us. Jesus notices us. It's very late at night. And in the ancient world, you didn't really go out at night because it was pretty dangerous. But Jesus takes the time to talk with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council, which were none too kind to Jesus. So Jesus would have been well within his right to turn Nicodemus away, thinking he was only there to bother, annoy, argue, attack, insert other word that means the same thing. But instead, Jesus sees Nicodemus. He notices him, and he makes time for him. The same is true of our God. 
God sees us. God notices us. Which on the one hand sounds very daunting, even scary, but on the other hand is deeply touching and beautiful. That the God who created all there is, who created the vast expanse we call the universe, who could be watching and noticing things of immense power and majesty and beauty, would want to take notice of us. It's amazing. God sees us. God notices us. God makes time for us. The second part of this story is in here too. Jesus knows us. Jesus knew who Nicodemus was. He was a member of the ruling council, a Pharisee. We know this because Jesus immediately begins a deep, complex, metaphysical, theological discussion. Jesus not only doesn't dismiss Nicodemus on sight, but instead cuts right to the heart of why Nicodemus is coming to visit him, which shows us that Jesus has compassion for Nicodemus, wants to help Nicodemus, and loves Nicodemus, which isn't necessarily a given based on who Nicodemus was. You see, at the time of Jesus, the nation of Israel was under Roman occupation. Anyone who had any political authority had it based on their collusion with the Roman authority. That the Israelites were able to have any political body of their own, religious or otherwise, depended on t- entirely on that body being friendly to and working for the interests of the Romans. Which meant that to an average Israelite, anyone who had any political authority, like Nicodemus, was a traitor and an enemy and despised. Jesus knew all this, and yet Jesus loved Nicodemus all the same. He helped Nicodemus all the same. We spent a lot of time with the kids this week talking about, talking about things that are surface, about us that are surface level, that anyone can know, and that we have things that are below the surface. There are things about us that everybody knows. Our hair color, eye color, tall, short. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. But then there are things about us that only our closest friends and family know. What makes us laugh? But then there are things about us that only God knows. Things that we keep hidden from the world. We all have those things. The thoughts we think on I-95... The noticeable groan. Oh. <laughs> the things about ourselves that we aren't proud of. The places in our lives that we and God are still working on. And good things. The stuff that makes us deeply happy. Our hopes and our dreams. Every now and again, I'll hear a song or I'll watch something, and it will be so meaningful to me. It will be so beautiful to me that I'll be afraid to talk about it or share it with anyone else for fear that their reaction to it might cheapen it. Maybe I'm just weird. I'm always open to that possibility. But I feel like there are things that we want to hold tight, keep closest to us. We told the kids that God knows those things too. God knows all of us, the good, the bad, the ugly. God knows it all. And even still, God loves us. God wants to be with us. God wants to know us. Jesus sees us. Jesus knows us. We have one more part to the story. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Clearly, he had not seen Benjamin Button. Yeah, two-year-old joke. Got it. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus saw Nicodemus, Jesus knew Nicodemus, and Jesus saved Nicodemus. Jesus tells Nicodemus that only those who are born again can see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus doesn't understand, as it's clear that someone can only be born once. It's not something that you can really do over easily. Jesus tells him that flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit, which sounds weird and cryptic until we remember that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. You see, Pharisees believed that salvation came through keeping strict obedience to the Jewish law, through eating the right things and avoiding the wrong things, through wearing acceptable clothing, through following ritual purity laws, all of which are things involving our physical bodies. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But, that sal- but the salvation that Jesus offers comes through the Spirit. We are early on in John's Gospel here. But Jesus is already alluding to what happens later. Clearly, no one had told Jesus about spoiler alerts. But Jesus knows that he will be lifted up, he will be crucified, and he will die. But the Spirit will bring him back to life on Easter Sunday so that all who believe in Jesus may have eternal life through him in the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The flesh and body of Christ failed and died on the cross, but the Spirit gave new life to Christ's body, and he was resurrected. Our flesh and body will fail to get us into the kingdom of heaven, but the Spirit can give us new life, and we can be born anew into an eternal kingdom. Jesus wants this for Nicodemus. Jesus wants this for you. Jesus continues, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does what is evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light 
so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And this right here is the heart of the story, the heart of the gospel. This right here is why we come to church. This right here is the story that the world desperately needs to hear. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him may not perish, but will have eternal life. This is the invitation that God in Jesus Christ offers Nicodemus and offers to you. You can have eternal life. You can be born again. You can have life and have it abundantly here and now and for eternity. All this can be yours if you simply ask Jesus for it. If you simply ask the Spirit of God to dwell in your heart. Whoever believes in Christ is not condemned. The Spirit has given you new life. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of Jesus. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And our flesh will eventually fail. This is the verdict. That the light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. This we know. This we experience. We see this when a seven-year-old tells us that she is bullied. We see this when someone kills 49 people in cold blood. We see this when one in four children in the richest nation in the world is born into poverty. We see this when every six seconds someone dies from hunger or hunger-related illness. We see this every time that we are forced to confront the chilling fact that we live in a broken world in need of redemption. This verse is a callback to one of the first verses of John that says that the light has come into the world and the darkness could not overcome it. The light has come into the world, the light shines in the darkness, and darkness can't overcome it. That's why we can come here and sing and have hope. Yet people love the darkness. They cling to the darkness. They continue to live in the darkness. The darkness still exists. And that is why we need to go from this place and tell the story. Boldly proclaim it. Shout this story. Live this story until more people can come into the light. Because those that do evil hate the light and refuse to come into the light for they fear their deeds will be exposed. There are people in this world who are hurting and broken. There are people in this world who act out of their hurt and in turn hurt others with their actions. But notice what this verse says about them. They don't want to come into the light because they are afraid. They are afraid that people will find out what they've done. It's not that they love the darkness. It's not that deep down they are evil people who are beyond redemption. It's not that they are against the light. It's that they're scared. They believe that if they come out of the darkness, that Jesus might see them. And that Jesus might know who they really are. And if Jesus knew who they really were, then there is no way that Jesus could love them. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. And this is the truth. That God in Jesus Christ already knows all there is to know about us. Those deeds are already exposed. There's no hiding in the darkness. Jesus sees us even in the darkness. Jesus knows us. Jesus knows our hearts and our deeds. And yet Jesus loves us still. God loves us still. And whoever knows that truth need not be afraid. They need not stay in the darkness. They can come into the light of God's love. 
and they can boldly proclaim that their deeds are known by God. They can be themselves in the light because they know that God sees them, God knows them, and God saves them. We live in a world that desperately needs to hear this message. We live in communities and in neighborhoods that desperately need to hear this story. Which is why instead of having vacation Bible school inside of a church, we take VBS into the communities and neighborhoods in which we live. We take it right to the people who need to hear it. But we can't reach everyone. Right now, you and I can think of someone in your life and in my life that needs to hear this message, that needs to hear this story. Who needs to know that God wants to save them. Who needs to know that God sees them and God knows them and loves them all the same. You can think of that person. I know you can. Because I can think of that person. Bring that message to them. Bring the message of God saving love in Jesus Christ to them. Let them know that God sees them. No matter where they are, no matter what they do, God sees them. Let them know that God knows them. God knows them better than they know themselves because it was God who created them. And let them know that God loves them all the same. God stands ready to save them, to offer them grace and to transform their lives. We have a story that someone in your life, someone in your community, someone in your neighborhood, someone that you know needs to hear. You have a stick of lit dynamite sitting in your lap. Are you just going to sit there or are you going to fish? Let us pray. God, what a story. What a story, what a love, what a grace. That you would create all there is. The immense beauty of the cosmos. Galaxies beyond number. And that with all that to look at, you would still take notice of us. And what's more, that you would know us deep in our bones. That you would search our hearts and know us inside and out. And that even still, you would love us. Even when there are parts of us that we don't know if we love. Even if there are parts of us that we wish we could change. You say to us that we are remarkably made that we are loved and we are claimed. And God, in the face of all that we've done, in the face of our attempts to win your favor, to win the favor of others, in all of our attempts to save ourselves, that you reach down and your grace covers us and you save us and transform us. What a story. What a message. What a love. Help us to take this from this place, to take this story, and boldly proclaim it to a hurting world. Because as the weeks go by, we see more and more reason why people need to hear it. Give us the grace and the strength and the courage to tell someone in our life how much you see them, how much you know them, and how much you stand ready to save them. Help us be bold for you. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.